Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 37. Today's episode is a continuation of my conversation with scientific illustrator and expeditionary artist Kirsten Carlson. I had so many questions for Kirsten that our conversation ended up being an extremely long one. You'll notice that I actually started to wrap up the conversation because I realized it was getting really long and then Kirsten kindly invited me to keep chatting if I had some extra questions, which I did. So this conversation has a an ending and then an encore and a second ending. (laughs) If you haven't listened to part one yet, you can go back and do that first. In that episode, Kirsten explained her scientific background and how she came to a career in science illustration. In this part two episode, we're going to dive right back into the action where we left off. Kirsten was talking about the physical realities and challenges of diving and sketching under the Antarctic sea ice. Let's listen. Oh my goodness. So tell me about like when you're there in front of a subject, how do you stop yourself from moving about or floating up or like the physical act of staying in one place underwater? How do you manage that? So the physical act of staying in one place has to do with experience and also (laughs) with current. Um, So I went diving recently in the Maldives in the Indian Ocean, and all of those dives were current dives, which means you pretty much went down, you swam with the current because you ain't swimming against it, and then you would come up and the boat would pick you up. It was almost impossible for me to bring that big drawing slate underwater because it was Mm -hmm. like having a sail. In Antarctica, the currents, for the most part, are pretty minimal. Um, Currents most often are are determined by tides and it's somewhat known what those tides are but sometimes it's not always easy to to know before you jump in a location whether there's going to be a current it's not until you're underwater going oh there's a current (laughs) so it so again i'll reference the undersea illustration um illumination video because i did this on Mm -hmm. purpose there's a there's footage i took of myself i put the camera on the seafloor and you can see me swimming And the whole point of that whole scenario was to get me drawing underwater on camera. It Mm -hmm. never happened. (laughs) Never happened. Um, Because if you watch me, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to line up to the thing I want to draw. And there's just the littlest, if you watch the video, you'll see things moving. It's not a strong current. It's very gentle. But when you're trying to stay in one spot, it can affect you. So yeah. you, you can grab onto stuff. I'm, I'm always pat- particularly cautious about touching things. That's a personal thing. In Fiji, I would try to grab a piece of dead coral that doesn't really exist in Antarctica. There's no, there's no hard corals. Um, but there were rocks in some of the dive locations. So it just depended on the situation, but I did prefer to hover as opposed to impact the seafloor. That's just a personal philosophy. And there was a dive where it was, it was too windy. (laughs) 
this is in Antarctica. The we we ha we happened to dive on it when a current was changing, when the tide was yeah. changing, and the current was just blowing. Uh, is a the blowing is a word that I use for that, yeah. and it just was impossible to use the dive slate. So I ended up using my camera, and okay. it was fine. It was fine. But yeah, there's definitely there's definitely conditions, and then um, if you're a scuba diver wanting to try drawing underwater, then you absolutely must be used to being neutrally buoyant. It's absolutely imperative that you understand buoyancy and that you're comfortable controlling yourself and keeping yourself at a certain level so that with every breath, you're not like shooting up 10 feet, going down 10 mm -hmm. feet. And that's just practice. And if you're, okay. if you're an artist and never scuba dove before, you certainly don't want to take a dive slate with you on your first diving experience uh, nor would you a camera, you, you know, safety is always first on a, yeah. on a, on a dive. And um, I mean, I have, you know, I probably have a somewhere around a thousand dives in my career about um, I'm one of those people that haven't done a very good job keeping my dive log. One got lost when I was in graduate school and it's just kind of gone downhill from there. <laughs> But some people know exactly what dive, how many yes. dives they've done, and I—that's the yep. first thing I would recommend—is keep an accurate dive log. But anyway, the point—the point is—is point is, is that if you've never dove before, but you are an artist, um, you might try snorkeling first. That's a mm -hmm. much safer thing. But it is hard because you're looking down. I really like being eye to eye with my yes. with my subjects. Um, but there's no reason why you can't try snorkeling. It's a much safer. I mean, you still need to be safe. Snorkeling has yes. its issues too, but that would be something you could try just to get a feel of what it's like drawing underwater. And then mm -hmm. I am terribly prone to seasickness. My first time drawing underwater was when I was in graduate school. It was from a dive boat. I took probably that first dive slate I showed you, the small dive slate, mm -hmm. and we happened to be diving in an area that was surgy. So that was really close okay. to the shoreline. And so the waves were pulling you in and out. And I made myself seasick. Oh, dear. So, yeah. So um, if you're prone to seasickness, you just got to either make sure you're diving in areas that there's no surge. Mm -hmm. or And that can be more problematic on snor uh, snorkeling, of course, because you're not necessarily that far from shore. And um, you just have to be aware of that. Wow. Side, the side effect side effect yeah. that's so interesting so i'd love you to take me under the sea so i heard you say that it's really dark what did it what was it like did it feel like out of space like what what does it feel like when you go down there in the dark was it scary tell me more about that um, so scary for me in the ocean is when there's limited visibility and I can't see, let's say, my feet. Mm -hmm. um, that's a childhood fear of mine because I grew up swimming in swimming pools. And the first time I swam in a lake when I was like 13 years old, I was terrified that something yeah. was going to grab my toes because yeah. I couldn't see them. <laughs> so that's my personal sort of issue. Um the visibility in Antarctica is basically infinity. I mean, it's oh, wow. certain times of the year. So before the plankton blooms, so that's prior to summer, the water is almost clear as gin. And the darkness is so odd because when you go down there, so, you know, Antarctica experiences 24 hours of sunlight in the summer, 24 hours of darkness in the winter. 
and mm-hmm. some variation of that as it transitions from spring to summer and fall to winter, et cetera, et cetera. So when I, when I go down there, the dive season in Antarctica for scientists and for myself is at that cusp between winter and summer. So that means Southern hemisphere, right? So that means mm-hmm. September, October, November, sometime in December, right around probably summer solstice, winter solstice, mm-hmm. depending on your hemisphere, <laughs> um, the plankton bloom will happen and then it goes to pea soup. I have no oh. desire to dive in Antarctica when it's like pea soup. I want to dive in Antarctica when it's crystal clear. But what's ironic is I was down there for the last sunset. So it was 24 hours of sunrise about a week after I think we arrived. But underwater, it's like eternal twilight. Um, wow. You've always got the sea ice above you. So it is dark. And we put a light on my drawing slate so I could see what I was drawing and I could see what I was, see my subject and see what I was drawing. But it's not pitch black. I like, I like the word twilight and it does feel like you're diving in space. I have made the analogy that I feel like I'm an astronaut um, floating in space and I've not been an astronaut, but there are numbers out there that say there are more astronauts that have been in space than there have been scuba divers in Antarctica. Oh, wow. That's an amazing statistic. Yeah. I don't have the numbers on that. I thought that, I think that's very interesting too. So the thing about scuba diving in that darkness, but in that clarity is that you have no fear of losing Mm. sight of your dive hole, which glows like a moon. Ah, Um, I see. And the nighttime analogy doesn't stop there because when you look at the seafloor and this happened, I had this discussion in 92 with a fellow musician that was diving with us that when you look at the seafloor which is volcanic and therefore black at ross island um and you see these sea stars that are all these different colors it's like the classic star that you draw in the heavens at night right but they're on the black seafloor so it's like you're looking down at the heavens at a sky filled with sea stars it's amazing Oh my goodness, that's that's just giving me goosebumps. I don't know why that's really magical. So good. I'm just here with my mouth open. I just I feel it as well. Like I can feel um, I can feel the magic of it when you're speaking. <laughs> so you had several dive sites that you explored, and you said that each community had three distinct habitats. And I love this, and that you were talking about the sea ice, the water column, and the seafloor. And I'd love for you to describe what you saw in each of these levels. So ironically, the sea ice would always be the thing I would visit at the end of the dive. Um, There Mm -hmm. were a couple dives where I spent my whole time near the sea ice, but for the most part, um, and this is because the way scuba diving works, you want to go to your deepest part of the dive first, and then you slowly come shallower, shallower until you're ready to do your Um, safety stop and then you go back Mm. to the surface so that's so it's kind of in reverse even though I pointed it out a certain I said sea ice well I I did with through the illustration show you that you go down to the seafloor person yes so um so with the sea ice uh it is in itself an amazing habitat you know it's ephemeral it only lasts let's say nine months of the year. I'm not sure about the exact time period, but it does the sea, the annual sea ice, hence its name annual breaks up and floats out to mm. sea and then reforms mm. in the winter to six or seven feet in thickness. That's kind of a annual thing. Mm. And um, one of the most 
amazing features is when the sunlight starts coming back. So when Antarctica transitions from winter darkness to summer sunlight, there are diatoms that live on the underside of the, of the sea ice. Um, we call them benthic diatoms, although benthic usually refers to things that live in and on the seafloor. They're mm -hmm. benthic because they're attached to a substrate. Okay. And they make this beautiful golden uh, yellow light, amber light. Um, their, their color is amber. And so the light percolating through the sea ice becomes this golden hue. It's very, wow. it's very um, trippy to watch it go from this blue ice, which is beautiful in and of itself, to this patchwork quilt of gold and blue. And then if you have snow, there's patches of dark. And it's just really interesting. So you've got this, this amazing microscopic plant-like life growing on the under ice surface. And then you have these brine channels, which make, brine channels are created when um, brine goes down, because it's heavy, through the sea ice. And um, as it comes in contact with the um, ocean water, it crystallizes. So you get these chandelier stalactite type shapes. Oh. And there's a whole community of animals that tend to revolve around those. Um, the brine itself is probably not terribly healthy. They call it fingers of death, actually, in some scientific <laughs> literature. I, I, it sounds very melodramatic. Um, <laughs> but if can freeze, you know, it freezes. And I may have, um, they, they call them brine channels, but I think I might have my terminology mixed up. So we need to look that up. So mm -hmm. I think the material coming through is extremely salty water. But what happens is that, um, you know, salt, salty water doesn't freeze as quickly as pure water. But there is a reason why these chandeliers form around that brine channel. And I can't remember exactly the mm -hmm. physics of it. So I apologize. But what's really cool is you see these little amphipods. Amphipods, think of them as little... Um, water insects for lack of a better way to describe them if you've never seen one before they are bright red and they tend to kind of bounce around and are hunting probably the plankton i don't know uh around the brine channels and then although i didn't see it in 2017 a huge part of my experience in 92 was um, these arrow worms so arrow worms are called ketognaths and they are I'm really glad they're only about five inches long because <laughs> if they were human size, they would eat us, but they are voracious predators and they're translucent except for their teeth. Um, they're, oh they're, yeah. Um, they're, and those are metallic looking and they're beautiful. So these arrow worms are something that I was looking for in 2017. I actually never saw them. Um, yeah. I, I was looking, but I but they were everywhere in '92. It's pretty impressive. So they so there's a there's a chain of animals, and then of course, as you drift down from that under ice community, and there's also larval fish. Excuse me, a lot of baby fish mm. hang out in that area of the sea ice because you not only have the brinicles and you don't and you not only have the diatoms, but you have this sort of crystal um, lattice that is sometimes I've heard it can be several feet thick. Um, I actually didn't test it, but let's say when I was there, it was only six inches thick and it's a bunch of crystallized ice, right? That's just 
hanging out on the other under it's not smooth it's kind of Mm. rough so there's a lot of larval fish that hang out there as well Then as you progress down into the water column, um, you come in contact with the more traditional plankton. So jellies, um, tinafores, siphonophores, comb jellies, um, little sea angels, which are called the genus is Cleone. They Mm -hmm. are a type of mollusk that flies through the water. They're pretty cool. very hard to photograph (laughs) because when you're floating in the midwater column there's nothing to hold on to right and and Mm. if you have a camera or drawing slate and you're focused on the animal it becomes a bit of a safety thing you you lose track of where you are in the water column and you don't want to go up or down so there's that and um there's lots of cool things to see in the water column um, you know, very haphazard. You don't, you didn't always get to see a siphonophore. So a siphonophore is one of the longest creatures on the planet. It's a, it's a colony of animals, right? Mm-hmm. So it's got a swimming bell head and polyps that make up its body, um, feeding and swimming and so forth. So what's interesting is I saw one one day and I really wanted to photograph it, but all I have are blurry shots. It's pretty hilarious. Mm-hmm. I may, I may have to post all my blurry, almost in focus shots, because there are many. It's pretty funny. (laughs) And then as you get toward the seafloor, that's where the benthic community comes into play. So um, the seafloor community, the seafloor habitat is, I kind of roughly subdivide that into hard substrate and soft substrate, and then divide it further into two zones. So there's what's called the anchor ice zone, which is a shallow area usually, that has that crystallized ice I was talking about that's on the under ice surface. Um, there's some science behind that that we're not going to go into detail because I'll embarrass myself again, like with the brine channels. Because <laughs> um, even I forget facts. I have to go back and of refresh course. my memory. And then <laughs> and then on the, on the non-anchor ice zone, um, you basically will see animals that live on the seafloor and animals that live in the seafloor. And mm. then you can divide those further into the animals that are mobile and the a- animals that are sedentary. So that's where it gets really interesting for me because that's my science background, right? Yeah. I'm really interested in those relationships. So um, one of the most amazing creatures down there are the sponges. They grow huge. They can, we don't really know how old they are, but they, they are so slow growing and they can, they, Early on, when divers started going down, they, they could be big enough to sit inside. That's how big they were. The biggest one I saw, which I called Fred, was probably the size, <laughs> we'll call him the size of half a dinner table, depending on the size oh, of your dinner gosh. table. Um, I couldn't fit inside of them, and nor would yeah. I go inside of them, but it was large. <laughs> and they, they tend to um, grow kind of deep. Uh, so there's this relationship between the anchor ice that grows... So I say anchor ice grows. So anchor ice is a thing that happens and goes from super shallow down to a particular depth that changes every year. And the anchor ice is actually extremely dangerous for animals, especially any animal, but especially animals that don't move. Even if you can move, anchor ice can lift you up. So there are pictures I have of looking at the under ice surface and seeing animals suspended in the ice because they got lifted up by anchor ice, like ice cubes, because it's less dense than water, and they got stuck. So anchor ice forms because the water in Antarctica is super cooled, 
Um, and because it's salty, it doesn't mean it's going to freeze instantly. But if it has something to grow, if there's a crystal, if a crystal mm-hmm. can grow on something, it will grow. And at a certain depth, there's a, there's again, not going to go into details because I can't <laughs> recite it, but at a certain depth, water will start freezing because of the pressure rules around ice formation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, once you get to the seafloor, there's all the creatures that live in the seafloor. And, of course, when I was a graduate student, I was sampling all those creatures, um, shoving cores down into the sediment mm-hmm. and taking them. I didn't do that this time. I only photographed what I could see on the surface. And then um, I was fascinated, of course, by looking for the relationships. So one of the one of the projects I did as an undergraduate was um, I was looking at clams so clams are a, a hidden animal, right? They bury themselves in the sediment. You only ever see their siphon sticking mm. up. Um, but for the most part, they're buried. And so uh, for various reasons in Antarctica, you would come across an unburied clam. Um, don't know why. Um, I know... I know when I was diving on iceberg scours and I saw them on the surface, I knew exactly what happened, right? They were scoured up like a bulldozer um, by the iceberg grounding on the bottom. But I I think that the clams in Antarctica are especially beautiful because their siphons are this beautiful indigo blue, kind of the color of my shirt, uh, purpley blue. And Mm -hmm. um, there's a thing in the video where I poke one and it, you know, closes up and withdraws. Yes, I saw, yes. So that's a clam. And um, in my drawings, I would draw, you know, I, I, there's a lot of drawings in my sketches of the ones I would see above the sediment. I didn't know Mm -hmm. how they got there. And sometimes the, there's a, there's a, I'm not sure what happens, but the worms will attack them. And um, I don't know if this is appropriate might be too gross but they will actually go down the siphon they will attack the clam from inside so they'll go down the siphon and attack the clam from inside oh goodness yeah Mm -hmm. wow that is some amazing stuff (laughs) yeah can i ask you this weird question i've asked it to another guest of mine who's a marine biologist and my question is why are there so many weird things under the sea compared with on land (laughs) well define weird for me that's the first thing Well, they're just so, well, okay, you're right. Maybe it's weird is unusual. Things that are adapted, wildly adapted to their environment in things that are squishy, things that are, I don't know, things that can change color, things that are, maybe it's just because we're not used to seeing them. You're right. It's a judgment, isn't it? I shouldn't judge things by saying they're weird. <laughs> oh, no, I, I think that there's a, it's a real curious, you, you've, you've tapped into something that you're curious about, so you should explore mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't have the right answer for you uh, because when you look, there, there is a diagram of animal life on the planet. And because we're humans, we tend to focus on the charismatic macrofauna, right? The yes. cute and cuddly whales and, yep. you know, fuzzy things Elephants. and mm-hmm. yeah, everything, everything that's mammalian, usually sometimes mm-hmm. reptiles and amphibians. But if you look at this chart that diagrams the animal kingdom on the planet, m- most everything that exists on the planet, and I'm talking visible, so we're not even getting into microscopic stuff, Yes, is insects. Like um, yeah. arth- arthropods, 
uh, super abundant, way more species of arthropods than any other group of animals combined. And we're not even going to get into plants. So mm -hmm. um, the planet is 70% water, right-ish. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that if 30% of the land is available for this life and 70% is available for this life underwater, that it just would be a natural thing that we would see a lot more diversity underwater. Yes. Um, just using the logic argument, but yes. um, also, you know, animals evolved. If you, if you want to go down that line of thinking animals evolved underwater first, um, water is a great medium. Yeah. Land is a terrible medium for creatures. <laughs> we have to figure out how to deal with drying out. I mean, we have to consume lots of water. When you're in the ocean, that whole thing is canceled out. I mean, you still got to get rid of the salt, but so there's that. That's that's the really, really, really short, 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 short answer to your question. But I encourage you to investigate that further because, yeah, um, you know, when in writing the proposal for Antarctica, I caught myself using the words um, Antarctica is an extreme continent where nothing can survive. That also is a pretty judgy statement. Um, <laughs> Humans have a really hard time surviving a lot of, yeah. you know, there's not a lot of life that we can see, but especially underwater, it's, it's a huge, um, it's, um, how can I phrase this? Sea life is thriving under the ice. I mean, it, the extreme yes. environment has to do with the continent and its location on the planet due to, you know, plate tectonics, but it wasn't always so. I mean, they found dinosaur fossils there. So mm -hmm. at some point in history, Antarctica was a bit warmer. <laughs> so that, I mean, you're, you're hitting a bond, a question that's a really cool one and it's a bottomless pit. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh my goodness. You are just so incredibly inspiring. I could talk to you forever, but I feel like I should let you go. But I just want to say just how inspiring you are. I read that you filled 75 sketchbooks and I'm just so impressed. And there was just this one quote that just made me smile. And it was that you said, I recommend journaling to anyone who wants to experience magic. And talking with you has brought me close to that magic. And I just want to say thank you. That's It's been amazing to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much. That means a huge amount to me. I'm very grateful that you can appreciate that. And um, it's so wonderful to share this passion for uh, engaging with nature through journaling, through sketching and everything. So I'm, I, I could keep talking as well. Um, <laughs> uh, if you have, I, I will, let's, let's do a little bit of an encore here. Are there any last questions that you really want to ask? If you have a few more burning questions, please ask. Well, there was a couple. One of them was that I, I love, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Sketchbook because, uh, you know, this is a podcast all about nature journaling and we all have a sketchbook in our hands. And you say that your sketchbook is a place where you play and fresh out, uh, flesh out creative ideas and you've filled up so many sketchbooks. I'd love to know what your thoughts are about the sketchbook as like a creative tool or a tool for your own visual thinking, your own play and learning the sketchbook and its importance to you okay well the the first thing i want to do is i want to make sure and and share a graphic that i created called the seven facets of field sketching 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're just things I came up with about why I love field sketching. My journals tend to be pretty messy. I, there are people that make sketchbooks works of art. I am not one of those people. Yes. I, I'm, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I admire yeah. those people that really make their sketchbooks into these beautiful pieces of art. It is really a workhorse for me. So yes. you will see that rarely is a page finished. Um, you, you can see that I, on my website, I have underwater and above water sketchbook. Posts yes. I love can... that. <laughs> Not all my sketchbook posts will ever see the light of day. Some have very yes. private personal information, but the important part is that it's a place where I can put both words and images and I, and ideas down. So words and images go down. They, mm. um, record ideas they record my mood and my emotions for the day. Yes. They record um, things I want to do or things I've seen. And I can go back and reference them. They're like a personal encyclopedia for me. Yes. So uh, this, so I'm open to a page in a sketchbook right now that has color samples that I did. I think I was just playing around with color blending. So this wasn't, mm-hmm. this wasn't me testing out. So oftentimes I'll do a color chart of new, of a new paint palette, <laughs> but I also use it for practicing lettering and um, whatnot. So my sketches when I was younger um, were all about training myself how to draw horses better, how to draw cartoon animals better. Um, often now it's about recording things I see in the environment Mm -hmm. or, um, in this case now I've come to the empty section of my sketchbook. So sometimes my sketchbooks are not even finished. Uh, I decide for, so I got into this habit where I was really strict about starting and ending a journal, completely filling it up. And then (laughs) I progressed to a habit where I had like five or six sketchbooks going, depending on the kind of paper that was inside. Yes, I have the same. (laughs) So this is great. You can't tell, but I have, I have a sketchbook that has gray paper. So I I liked it because I could put white ink on top of it and see white. Yes. And, um, it's sort of a catch-all for me. So, so the reason why sketchbooks are such an important tool is I don't just use them for recording nature. I, re- I use them for recording ideas. So it goes mm. from observing the concrete details I see in the world yes. to exercising my brain to think of ideas to um, writing out uh, more journalistic entries where I'm commenting on how I'm feeling that day or how I'm irritated because so-and-so did this or whatever, (laughs) or how I'm so happy because somebody has given me a compliment about my work. I mean, it can be that full of a range. Um, So sketchbooks to me are like uh, the training that I do so that I can create artwork in my studio later. So those drawings I did underwater in Antarctica those are fuel, those are the raw materials and a really important part of the layering of the cake to go back to that analogy. Yes. So that when I'm back in the studio, I can use those personal encyclopedias, these drawings that I did and look back and go, okay, what did I see on that dive? And then I'll look at my photographs and then I can create a complete illustration. So they are part of my process of being a professional artist. Um, But when I was 10, 11, 12, they were just fun. They were how I passed the time. And there's some element of that 
also. So, so yes. sketchbooks are personal encyclopedias. They have the ability to capture moments in time, but they also have the ability to remind me of what's important to me. And for me, sketchbooks are similar to training um, for marathons and triathlons and whatnot. So that if the triathlon or the marathon is the goal, then doing those training sessions where I'm building up my ability to run or to swim or transition, those are really important. That's the training. So sketchbooks to me are like the training I do for my career as an artist. Mm. Um, mm. They're extremely important. I can't be an artist without a sketchbook. They are yes. absolutely vital to my life. That's a beautiful way to sum summarize it. And my final question was your thoughts on how art can help people connect with the natural world. I guess we already touched on this, but to also build their desire to act for change. So I think that that is probably your um, your goal with all of this, with science communication, is to help people love nature, to help people want to act for change and want to protect nature. And I'm wondering the role, your thoughts on the role that art has in all of this in helping people connect and and want to act? Yeah, so I think I have to tease that that question apart a little bit from my own mm. from my own sensibilities. So I have no doubt in my mind that climate change is real. You cannot have 8 billion people in a closed system called planet Earth and not have us cause changes. It's just yes. it's it would be silly to say we are not having an effect. Yes. But I'm not one of those people that wants to stand up on my soapbox and say, we must stop doing this. We must stop doing that. Because humans, I love us all. We are not going to stop doing what what, yeah. what we want. I mean, um, in Hawaii, I came face to, when I lived in Hawaii for six years, I came face to face with this challenge that humans face where I would walk the beach and I would see tons of microplastic and there are some days where I would just cry for humanity because I'm like there's nothing we can do it's extremely hopeless like I, I'm not gonna cuss <laughs> but it's like holy holy cow how could how can we as a species with the power that we have for making change continued like we're doing to a planet yeah. that we know is needed for our survival, for our thriving. And so I can I can get on my soapbox, but I tend to not <laughs> I tend to not want to do that because me lecturing at you is not going to fix any issue because our job as humans is to look for the good in the world and to focus on the positive because that's where we can affect change. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with focusing on the negativity. It's just my journey in life can't be about that. Mm. So tied to that is why I ended my undersea illuminations with the quote I did. Um, it's by Baba Dioum, and he was speaking in front of the UN the year I was born, 1968. His, his quote is, in the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand and we will understand only what we are taught. Mm -hmm. So that quote, um, when I when I came across it, I was deeply moved by that because it kind of captures in in a 
very non soapboxy way why exactly I do what I do. So I've always wanted to understand the natural world and um, animals have always been really important to me as part of that. And uh, there's no, there's no way that someone can tell me that animals are important, that our planet is important. It's something that I've witnessed over and over with my own eyes and my skills and my abilities to be a curious explorer and a creative capturer of information and art mm. are are both the process and the end result of how I reawaken myself every day to the fact that this planet is so important that you mm. and I might be half a world away, but that we're extremely interrelated regardless. And that there is a pure love for that. And often you can't tell someone how to love. You can just show them what you find lovely and then they have to find their own path. And that's why for me, science and art are this perfect union of giving people the ability to find what they love in their own surroundings. Sketchbooks are one of the simplest ways that you can find out what you love around you. And um, as far as a professional artist and going taking my sketchbook underwater goes, um, I made a choice to be a professional artist. It's not all cookies and ice cream, right? It's, it's <laughs> a lot of hard work. It's um, a lot of loneliness, a lot of alone mm. time. But it's really important to me to capture... Uh, and communicate what inspires me about the beauty and wonder of nature. And for me, that special place between science and art of being curious, of being creative, not only lets me share it with others, but in the moment, I'm also able to experience it. Yeah. I'm really, really thrilled to have met you because your work just takes my breath away your experiences are like no one else's and I'm so happy to have found you and be able to I think part of my work is just being someone who can introduce people to each other so I'm bringing you to my listeners and I'm so happy to be able to do that and I'm also thrilled just personally for myself because I'm I think your work is amazing and you have just made me so happy tonight I just can't stop smiling (laughs) oh that's I you know that means the world to me and um you being able to do this to share to be an intermediary is really fantastic so I want to thank you um from the bottom of my heart for wanting to listen oh Kirsten thank you so much yeah you're you're very welcome I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kirsten. I've always felt a profound connection with Antarctica. It's magic and it's mystery and remoteness and the adventure of just imagining myself there. I was so happy and excited to have the opportunity to speak with Kirsten who has experienced the magic in a way that very few people ever have. As she said, she'll likely spend the rest of her life engaged in the work of trying to fathom this incredible undersea world. I love how she's taken on the word fathom. 
Kirsten's website about her Antarctic experiences is called Fathom Antarctica, and she's also created Fathom It Studios. It's such a wonderful word, and it has a double meaning, of course. A fathom is a unit of measurement for the depth of water. One fathom is six feet deep, I think, or 1.8 meters deep. And of course, the word is also a verb. To fathom something is to understand it. We often use this word to describe something that's complex or mysterious or hard to understand. We say something is unfathomable. But it's Kirsten's work to uncover the mysteries of this beautiful undersea Antarctic world and to communicate this with others through her art and her writing. I'm so grateful to have witnessed a part of her process and I'll be watching her work from now on as it unfolds more and more. I want to let you know about an online mini-symposium that's happening as part of the Adequate Earth exhibition that Kirsten has been part of. It's called Exploring the Way Forward, and it's a discussion about the Antarctic Artist and Writers Collective and how they plan to continue telling different aspects of Antarctica's story. The event will be on May 22, 2021 at 11am Pacific Time. You can find the registration link for this event in the show notes for today's episode. I'm also very excited to share with you that Kirsten will be joining us for International Nature Journaling Week and giving a workshop on the things she noticed in the undersea world when she was in Antarctica. Her workshop will be on the 4th of June at 9am Pacific Time. I'm so excited to learn from Kirsten and I hope you'll be there for her workshop. I am hoping that adventure finds you this week, even if it's a little outdoor expedition. You can find wonder and mystery everywhere you are, and I hope you're keeping your eyes out for that. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. (laughs) 